This podcast is sponsored by Equiland, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Asia Securities Finance Monthly. I'm Matt MacArthur. Coming up on this episode. What can the securities lending industry learn from Tom Cruise's stunt team? Andy McArdle from Equiland gives us his take. And we put another future industry legend in the hot seat for our five and five segment. This time, it's Sally Park from JP Morgan, only on Asia Securities Finance Monthly. But before that, we get to tackle some current APAC market dynamics with James Cooper, who runs the agency lending trading desk here in Hong Kong for HSBC. Welcome, Coops. Hey, Matt. Now, we'll certainly cover how agent lenders, like ourselves, fit into the securities finance universe. But I really want to pick your brain regarding current Asia demand drivers. But I have to be fully transparent here. James and I do the exact same job, but at rival banks. So this will be a good litmus test to see how much we agree or disagree. Now, let's start off very simply. What is the role of an agent lender, especially in 2023? I think fundamentally it depends what angle you're viewing it from. It's kind of the market or or market efficiency view where lenders are providing liquidity to the street and liquidity to the market, which has many benefits, including price discovery and reducing bid-ask spreads. And then there's the counterpart or or trading type view where lenders are kind of one side of a trade that, that helps to meet execution needs such as directional trades, hedging corporate action trading, etc. But I mean, fundamentally, we're a client business. So our role is to help the client firstly maximize returns on their assets, but also importantly, as an asset servicing business, lending is part of a wider range of custody services is to help those beneficial owners meet their, their investment needs. Now, this is a slightly loaded question, but what are the current demand drivers you're seeing in APAC? Meaning, what are some reasons that we're seeing borrowing rates increase on certain names? Yeah, well, I mean, post-COVID, rising interest rates and and rising inflation has produced a very different macro environment than the 10-plus year bull we had in the equity markets. Rising interest rates has caused money to flow from equities into bonds, and the interest rate differentials has created dislocations across markets. JGBs has definitely stood out. A possible move away from yield control has created a lot of short interest, whilst the buying from the BOJ itself has caused some dislocations in the market, especially in terms of cheapest to deliver or on the run bonds. Furthermore, on the bond side, on the corporate bond side, I should say, purely by way of interest rates going up, we've seen bond prices go down and and hence directional interest. On top of that, there's been very specific demand or or distress in in certain sectors such as real estate. We've definitely seen corporate action activity pick up, capital raisings, placements, rights issues, tenders uh, have kind of all presented opportunities as companies look for cash, essentially all events where lenders can work with clients to monetize certain elections. Now, let me pull on that string a little. You mentioned corporate actions. How have you seen the landscape evolve over the past few years here in Asia? Well, I think the push towards automation more generally in APAC has allowed more time to focus on these trades. I think pricing is more sophisticated in terms of understanding the true value of the trade and also timing of execution. There's also more transparency between lender and broker. On the client side, I would say clients are much more engaged on elections. Of course, certain client types such as pension funds and insurance companies may be more inclined to take cash you know, for their liabilities, which can be more beneficial as, as a lender for, for certain types of events from an election perspective. But overall, I would say that just engagement overall is up across the industry. I think specific to APAC as well, markets such as Malaysia have opened up, which have large script discounts, for example. Although I would say that there's some challenges as well. I, 
I think there are some limitations in, in some APAC markets that prevent certain opportunities being fully monetized. You know, just one example is that there are some restrictions in terms of shorting and hedging during a corporate action in, in some markets. Now, I don't want to trip the rope here, but in general, what is the current focus of agent lenders and how do we differentiate from each other? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to say there. I think it's important in the current macro environment, especially to look at the loan and the collateral book more holistically and across regions with management of collateral being central to that. I mean, that includes the expansion of collateral mandates into markets such as Korea, Taiwan, Stock Connect. ETFs, corporate bonds, is the collateral still fit for purpose in, in the current macro environment? Also, what is the best form of collateral in a rising interest rate environment? You know, how do we balance cash versus non-cash? But ultimately, you know, how do we optimize our assets you know, as a liquidity provider to the street and, and price accordingly? But I think ultimately, you know, as agent lender, our priorities will, will tie into the priorities of our clients. We've seen portfolio allocations change sometimes quite significantly. So, you know, how do we make this transition for the client smooth and how can we kind of monetize the new assets quickly? I think also with the kind of issues in, in the US at the minute with some of the regional banks, we've definitely seen a kind of flight to safety and kind of quality and, and scope of an agent lender indemnity kind of supported by a, a strong balance sheet is very important. Now, the million dollar question to me is, how do you say APAC is different from other regions, such as EMEA or the US? Well, I'd say, I mean, purely on the inventory side, there, there is a depth of kind of new to market assets not being currently lent. So you're not always competing with, you know, necessarily for assets that are already being lent by another lender. There are still very large differences in terms of market structures, which are, are certainly not homogenous. For example, Taiwan, lending through an onshore broker, including all of the recall requirements. Then on the bond side, the infrastructure of some domestic markets are still in development. And then even on the collateral side, you know, there, there are still opportunities for markets not covered by a standard title transfer model. So the ID markets such as Korea, Taiwan and Stock Connect. But then finally, and perhaps the largest is, is the lending of onshore China assets and, and Stock Connect assets. You know, there is no other region that has such a big opportunity ahead of them. And I know that Paslu and, and the China Working Group are doing a great job in, in trying to take that forward, which will benefit the whole industry. Now, this question is topical as we have Andy McArdle from Equiland on next. But do you think the transparency in terms of transactional data through the growing segment of digital vendors makes borrowing slash lending more difficult and competitive in terms of pricing? Now, let me put that into English. Because our industry is OTC or over-the-counter, how does benchmarking via popular vendors like Equiland play a part in our business? Look, automation is super important, especially in APAC. We've definitely seen the balance of automation versus manual trades increase in favor towards automation over the past few years. I think that's partly been driven by some of the punitive measures in some markets in regards to fails, uh, both on the loan side, short sell side, or, or the recall side. Again, just automation, it does allow more focus for the add value opportunities, which is where we should be focusing. In. The role of the lender then becomes, okay, how do we optimize the flows? How do we optimize our IT infrastructure? I think there's always a desire for faster and more real-time data to help with price discovery, which I think will always be a desire and, and certainly something we're, we're moving towards. On the benchmarking side, I think it continues to be a bit of a challenge to the industry. I think 100% benchmarking is inherently difficult because of the different client parameters across 
to be honest, across lenders, but also across actual clients as well. And it's also reliant on the quality of the data being submitted by everyone in the industry, which again, itself can be a challenge. But, you know, there are initiatives in flight to kind of make that more consistent across the industry, which again, is what we need to work towards. Coops, I was so nervous I was chewing on glass over here. But for the record, I agree with everything you said. And thanks again for joining us. As promised, we have with us today, Andy McCardle from Equiland here in Hong Kong. Welcome, Andy. Hey, Matt, how you doing? Now, I get it. This isn't exactly center court at Wimbledon, but you are an integral part of the fabric of the Hong Kong securities finance community. So I do appreciate you being here. Now, Equiland is in a unique position as a data provider for our industry. Can you walk us through what potential regulatory changes you see impacting Asia? Yeah, sure, Matt. Interesting question. I think that, you know, the harder bit is when we look globally at the way regulation works in the developed world, being sort of Europe and the US, it, it moves at a glacial pace. Whereas here, things change quickly and dynamically. But we have both aspects of that. You've got Japan and you've got Australia that are sort of much more aligned to the West when it comes to regulatory changes with a lot of interactions with the markets. But then you have sort of Korea, Taiwan, where you've had changes come out sort of on a Friday lunchtime. And as we record this at 11.05 on a Friday, I hope this isn't one of those days. But, you know, I think that what we have seen is a lot more inspection by the regulators. If we look at what's happened in Korea over the last couple of years, you know, people are looking for ways in which to make sure that they can always be on the right side of the regulatory environment. So look, I think as a, as a technology provider, I think that we sit in a very good position to be able to offer some solutions that enable people to make sure that they can meet their regulatory requirements. You know, I think where we have seen people in the past sort of trying to run reports internally, a lot of regulators like it if there is a third party sort of trade venue that has been used or storage system so that they can give details of the trades, timestamps with details that meet those regulatory requirements. And look, I think that you've got to also look at those more developed markets in Australia and Japan as the European markets have brought in SFTR over the last couple of years and the US looks to potentially bring in a 10C1 regulatory environment. Will Japan, will Australia look in the future to potentially follow suit and bring in a sort of reporting requirement on a daily basis beyond what they already have? Now, not to sound like a Marvel movie here, but talk to me about the impending digital revolution that I keep hearing about. Well, Matt, I mean, I always be more as a sort of an animated film kind of person than a Marvel person, if I'm honest. But look, I think from a digital perspective, it's something that we've all been hearing about for years. You know, it's, it's coming, it's DLP, it's blockchain, it's all these buzzwords. I think that where we are now is the technology is in a much better position than it was previously to actually provide solutions of meaning and of substance. There's a lot of talk about tokenization. There's a lot of talk about sort of using potential cryptocurrencies as collateral and things such as that. And the difficulty is, is the digital revolution is potentially such a large revolution. And from my perspective, it's kind of akin to moving from the old days of a of a literal ledger on a desk where people hand wrote sort of details of a trade to, to sort of then share around to, to sort of fully integrated automated systems. The digital revolution is going to change the market significantly again. And there are many ways that that can happen, whether it's around collateral, whether it's around tokenization of, uh, of the actual securities itself. 
Now, Andy, let me ask you this question in the form of a story. Now, I've known you for a decade, so I apologize if you've heard this before. But about 15 years ago, I was in Vegas, and it was late, late. And sure enough, of all the people in the world, Tom Cruise sits next to me. What the hell do you say to Maverick at 2 a.m.? But after I sit there and lose half my chips, desperately trying to think of an original question to ask him, I finally blurt out, Tom, I have one question and one question only. You're hanging off of planes. You jump out of buildings. You're flying F-14 Tomcats. How on earth do you get your stunt team to sign off on that? He looked at me and said, easy. I tell them what I want to do. And if they don't agree, I get a new stunt team. Now, obviously, I wish our life was that simple. But essentially, it comes down to all the tech changes that we face today. With all the digital changes impacting our marketplace, how does Equilon keep up? I'll be honest, Matt, I thought that story was going to end with you potentially changing careers and becoming one of Tom Cruise's stunt doubles. But luckily for the industry, you stayed in banking. But from, a, from an Equilon perspective, you know, the difficulty with all of this has historically been getting people to spend IT budget and resource. You know, once again, digital is something that is in a slightly different paradigm. What we've seen in our sort of development of our one source technology is we've been able to work with our client firms. And we did a proof of concept with 10 where we're not just working with their operational team. We're not just working with their trading team. We're also working sort of for a lot of banks who have a sort of separate IT budget and resource that is focused on digital because they see it as the potential future, but want to understand how they can correctly implement that across their organizations. And look, and I think in that global solution, we've got to look at Asia because, you know, if there's any markets within the world that sort of carry the highest potential risk, the highest potential sort of punitive damages, whether it's sort of, you know, banning from the market or sort of even some of the concepts of potential jail, if it's a Korean sort of certain types of trade and what have you, you know, these are the markets which should ideally get some of the biggest benefits out of these new technologies. Now, what are the implications of the increasing demand for real-time data? And more importantly, what applications do we have to help us with this? Yeah, I mean, Matt, we've, we've spoken about this many times. I mean, data is, is a key driver. And if we look back over the 15, 16, 17 years since data sort of first reared its head, it's in a very different position today than it was back then. I think that there are still some people who would like to put the genie back in the bottle, but I think we all know that that's not going to be the case. And it's all about trying to get more timely data, as you say. The difficulty is the data is one thing. It's also about what do people do with that data? You know, it's great to say we want more timely data. And once again, we have to be honest and hold our hands up. Here in Asia, it is less timely data than it is in the rest of the world, purely because most large organizations run off a global timed platform and can't deliver information to any data provider until the end of the day out of the US, which means by the time it's sort of anonymized and aggregated and released out to the client base, it's late in the afternoon in, in most of the Asian markets. And how timely is timely? Because everyone mentions real time, but real time is conceptually a lovely idea, but are you actually able to use that data in a real time scenario? And, and also the difficulty is to sort of still align from Jean-Paul Sartre, who, who I know you read extensively, Matt. You know, one man's 
timely data is another man's too timely data or one man's not enough data is another man's too much data. So as a data provider, you also run that sort of double-edged sword of, is this giving away too much information? How much information, how granular should it be? And that's always going to be a difficulty for the market. Now, I know this is a moving target question, but how is APAC best placed to respond to the digital revolution slash digital transformation? Look, I think in, in some ways, the digital transformation gives Asia the opportunity to almost leapfrog certain steps that the rest of the world are already on. I think when we look at sort of some of the technology we're bringing in with one source, we're looking at how do we replace comparison services. And yet when we look at markets here, such as Korea, such as Taiwan, such as even domestic Japan, those tools that have historically been out there for years from ourselves and other providers have been less integrated into those domestic markets, as it were. Yet, you know, it was a great thing this time around to finally get back to an in-person Pazler in Tokyo, you know, and what we found was where we've had difficulty in the past in trying to convince some of the domestic participants that those comparison services that are available are, are necessarily useful tools or, or sort of good risk mitigation processes compared to their current workflows. What we did see is with a lot of the press around the digital transformation, there's a lot more engagement from some of these domestic markets to say, well, we never really fully embraced comparison services and all of this. It was still re relatively manual. But we're probably just going to skip that stage. You know, Asia should be in a far better place at the end of this revolution than it is at the start. Thanks for joining us, Andy. I know that the digital space is always evolving, so we might need to lean on you in the near future. I hope that's okay. Absolutely, Matt. Absolutely. Well, great to have you again. When we first created five questions in five minutes to spotlight the future stars of APAC, the first person that I thought of was our next guest. It's one thing to be knowledgeable and cover multiple markets. It's another thing to do it with a platinum level of service. She does both. It's a pleasure to have with us today, Sally Park, JP Morgan Hong Kong. Welcome, Sally. Thanks, Matt, for such an amazing intro. All right, let's walk this down the aisle. It's an oldie but goldie. If you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, excluding family, who would it be and why? Um, excluding family, I think the person I'd love to have dinner with right now is my best friend, Sydney. She's been my best friend since age 12. Sadly, she moved away from Asia to Philadelphia this year, so it's been pretty hard to keep in touch. So right now, I'd love to just catch dinner with her, you know, catch up on life. That would be awesome. What was the hardest adjustment about working on a securities finance trading desk? For me, the most difficult part is always being on. Yeah, I agree with you, Matt. I think that's one of the difficult adjustments I had to make. Another notable one for me, especially for me being a fresh grad, was transforming my work pattern completely to adjust to the SBL flow. I joined SBL immediately after finishing my bachelor's, and I still had that student mindset where, you know, I was used to being given a longer time horizon, say, you know, you have an exam coming up in three months or you have an essay due next month and I'd be able to plan around that. And as you know, for us, it's more of a daily schedule that we have and we have different expectations for each hour. And so kind of, you know, the panic that I had every day was pretty bad. And I think it took me a couple of months to really get used to that and be comfortable. Now, what are some useful tools that you would recommend for a new joiner to the securities finance world? The most important tool 
simply put would be to cultivate meaningful relationships to kind of break this broad tool down. First would be finding your mentors that you could speak to. This could be someone in your team, your floor, or anyone doing a similar flow business like you. Because they're more senior than you, they've worked more years, there's a high chance that they've already faced similar challenges and issues that you are about to face as you embark on your career. So I think learning from their experiences and stories can help you make the best decisions and best tackle when those challenges come your way. The second part would be the lenders and brokers that we talk to every day. You know, for a lot of us, I think we talk to them even more than boyfriends and girlfriends that we have. Um, so it's only normal that we invest our time in getting to know truly who they are rather than just keeping it transactional. I started covering Hong Kong when I started and as anyone who's covered Hong Kong would know, I think the buy-in covers get extremely panicky. Those are the moments when true relationships that you've invested in shine through because when you think you're about to have a buy-in, magically your friend will save you. And I think that's when you know you have made the best relationships you could. A very fair point. Now, just like Poison says, every rose has its thorn. Give me the pros and cons about working on a trading desk. Fast paced, super urgent, demanding people like me? Definitely. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe start with cons. Uh, I think the lack of time during the day is very difficult for me. I mean, we start early on, then no lunch break, then we end around 6 p.m. It's intense hours all throughout the day. We're not a normal nine to five. And I think that no break and no time to unwind during the day really got me in the beginning. Also, it kind of spilled over to my personal life where I've gotten a little bit more impatient, which is not good. For example, when I'm WhatsApping my friends now, I think 10 minutes of no response, I'd be thinking, uh, can I ring this person, ring the bell on this person? <laughs> yeah, and then moving on to pros, it's great that we have the ability to switch off completely when we're done with work at 6 p.m. I think for a lot of project-based roles, such as you know consulting, investment banking, you don't have that option. You're probably thinking about it until you go to bed, which is not the best. For us, we can Netflix without a worry, which is awesome. I also think this could be maybe personality dependent, but that social aspect of SBL is amazing for me. Meeting great people across the industry, I think that's been an, like a great experience. Now, if not Hong Kong, where else would you like to work? New York, maybe London? Uh, so many places I'd love to work in. I think New York would be a great place to work in for me because JP Morgan is American. Our headquarters is in New York. So kind of being in the headquarters office would be great. But I think living in New York would be pretty damaging on my wallet, too. <laughs> Very fair. Sally, you are a pleasure to trade with on a day-to-day -day basis. And not surprisingly, you're even better on a podcast. Thanks again. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Our only ask to the listener is, you are our lifeline. Market feedback of any kind helps. Comments, suggestions on future topics, inquiries, they're all welcomed. Please reach us at podcast at pazlaonline.com. I'm Matt MacArthur, and thanks for joining us. We'll see you on the next edition of Asia Securities Finance Monthly. This podcast was sponsored by Equilend, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry.